0: We're rocking the suburbs after a big election this week. Ernst makes excuses and Grassley sucks up to Trump at the White House. What a week. I'm Matt Sinovic, the executive director of Progress Iowa.
1: And I'm Lauren McMeal, the digital director for Progress Iowa.
0: Welcome to What a Week, where we break down the week's top stories. We're going to start with the biggest news of the week, a decisive election on Tuesday for progressives all across the country. Um, but especially in the showing a trend in the suburbs, you had uh, Lauren Virginia flipped both uh, the, their house and Senate. You had Kentucky a governor, a Democratic governor, elected in in Kentucky, largely based on the Cincinnati suburbs in the northern part of the state, really turning out for Democrats. Um, Pennsylvania, or the Philadelphia suburbs and local governments flipping to to the Democrats. And then here in Iowa, a lot of new progressive voices. Um, we're going to be joined by Bridget Carberry-Montgomery and Matt Blake, who are elected to the Urbandale City Council, um, as two examples uh, of that here. But what was your biggest takeaway from the election this week?
1: I've really been following Danica Rome's kind of trajectory as an elected official over the past couple of years. She is a delegate in Virginia's House. And she's she's the first transgender woman elected to office in the country and all, she's now the first transgender woman reelected to an office in this country. And that is incredible and and such a great thing for our country to now have that kind of representation. And I hope that that trend continues.
0: Yeah, and I mean and and it's I mean to see to see that victory, to see the, the entire state of Virginia now, I mean, I remember in 2006 when um, when Jim Webb won his Senate race.
1: Oh, Jim Webb! Right, but
0: that was like a that was a huge upset because it was Virginia and it was the South and it was the consistent Republican state. And and now you fast forward um, 13 years and they have Democratic governor, Democratic statewide's two chambers. I mean, it is it is a, it's, it's maybe not a deep blue state like a California or New York, but it is a consistently democratic state when it comes to elections. This has been a big shift.
1: I am excited for what this means for the Equal Rights Amendment, because yeah. now that they have all of these um, chambers that have gone blue, they have an opportunity to ratify the ERA. And I don't remember off the top of my head how many states are left that need to do that. But this Just one. Greg is yeah. saying one. I think so, Virginia's it. So Virginia's is is it. it.
0: If they do it, it's law, I think.
1: Which would be excellent and would also be such an incredible thing for, like, all... Of, like, that's a fight that started in, like, the age of, like, Gloria Steinem and... I mean, I can't, I can't imagine what it's like to be Gloria Steinem anyway, but to see something (laughs) (laughs) that started when you were very young, come to fruition so much later in your life, but still to be alive, to see it. And I think that that's one of those like few victories that, that you get to see in your lifetime where you've worked really hard at something and it finally happens.
0: Yeah. It will be, assuming that actually takes place. Because if any of these last few years have taught us anything, we should not, you know, we should hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Let me have this, (laughs) match. But no, but it will be an incredible moment in our history um, when that gets officially, uh, uh, when when that is officially ratified.
1: I think it's also interesting with the Kentucky race, how that's going to affect um, statewide races, um, especially the Mitch McConnell race, because... Mm -hmm. I mean, I've not done like a terrible deep dive into Kentucky politics, but apparently the Republican governor was incredibly unpopular. And I mean, I don't have to tell anyone that like Mitch McConnell is terribly unpopular. Right. But so if if there are any, you know, ramifications of this for for the Mitch McConnell, Amy McGrath, I don't remember if she's the primary opponent yet, but that kind of race.
0: Yeah, no. And And there were a lot of comparisons, people making an initial like, Oh well, this means that Mitch McConnell's race is now in play, and all this. I mean, and and maybe it's maybe that's an overstatement. But the response was, well, Governor Bevan was the most unpopular governor in the country. Well, Mitch McConnell's the most, by far, the most unpopular uh, uh, senator in the country. So it's it's a very apples to apples comparison there. And by the way, Senator Joni Ernst is one of the top ten least popular senators in the country. So I mean, you saw a um, in from in Kentucky, it was like a 13 point difference between what Trump did in 2016. And what Bevan did in uh, 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 earlier this week in this election, so a 13 point swing. And in Iowa, just to take that as a comparison, Trump won Iowa with 51 between 51 and 52% of the vote. If you take this is a very not scientific method here, but if you took 13% off of that, that puts his numbers or Ernst's numbers or whatever statewide number you want to – whatever statewide race you want to assign to that in the high 30s here. And, and so even if, the, and even if the real drop-off is somewhere in between, Republicans are in deep trouble even in, even in Iowa next year if anything close to what happened in Kentucky this week happens here.
1: That would be a swell thing to happen <laughs> in Iowa because she is also not great.
0: Well, I just think it's indicative of something that's happening all across the country. And it is – there's a lot driven by the suburbs, but it's a lot of pe- – it's people being turned off by what the Trump administration is doing. But it's also, I think, a continuation of, a, of an effort where it's like, OK, we really do want health care. You know, we really do want people to be able to go see a doctor without going bankrupt.
1: That's such an odd thing to say that like that is now a controversial take that like it's yeah, not now. It was people... it was five years ago. Well, I mean right? that like for some Republicans that like they don't run on healthcare anymore. At least like with You their, mean against like against yeah, 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 yeah. they don't because they I mean they don't really have a leg to stand on right. if you've voted several times to repeal the only really existing like healthcare structure within our country that has been able to extend Coverage to millions of people. And I mean, especially with Medicaid expansion, there was just something that came out this week that hundreds of Iowans would be like sick and dying without that Medicaid expansion, which was a part of the ACA.
0: Yeah. And there are still states that haven't done that. Republic, I mean, mostly controlled by Republican governors or legislatures, (laughs) but like, but they haven't expanded Medicaid. We've, we did that five, six, six years ago. I mean, it sure was like uh,
1: we did expand it though and that like did lead to more coverage and then Branstead was like, JK, we're gonna do other stuff with this. <laughs>
0: uh, yes, he did. which is
1: really just the Branstead method. like like, yeah, we're gonna do this. JK, we're gonna do something else.
0: <laughs> so in addition to the victories in Kentucky, Virginia, um, and really all over the country, we had a lot of great progressive victories here in Iowa, and we were able to talk to two newly elected members of the Urbandale City Council, uh, a suburb here in the Des Moines area, uh, Bridget Carberry Montgomery and Matt Blake. We're excited to be joined now by Bridget Carberry Montgomery and Matt Blake, two newly elected members of the City Council in Urbandale, and selfishly, I'm very glad to have them on on, uh, the show this week because they are uh, they are members of my city council as a resident of Urbendale. So, Bridget and Matt, welcome to What a Week. We are just so excited to have you here to be talking about these election results. There were new progressive voices who won office all over the state, um, all over Polk County. Um, so, I mean, maybe let's start with with Bridget. What was your what was your, some of your experience on the campaign trail? On the campaign trail, was there excitement about you running? Was what were you what were you feeling out there?
2: Um, I felt a lot of excitement. Um, I never, I probably can count on one hand the number of times that I had negative and even negative is a harsh word experiences on the doors. But generally people were very excited to see, um, Dale moving, um, in a more forward direction led by younger, more progressive people like Matt and I, Uh, for me personally, um, people were excited, um, to see a qualified woman running for city council. We haven't had a woman in Urbandale on the council for eight years. And also, um, I live in Dallas County, Urbandale, and we've never had a representative on the city council. And as you're all aware, I think the suburbs are starting to trend, um, a little more progressive um after the last um round of elections in twenty eighteen.
0: So I think all of that worked together and in, in my favor. Yeah, we were we talked about that with the uh races in uh Kentucky, Virginia and then some even in Pennsylvania. There's results from the suburbs there. So I think this is a it's becoming a trend. Um Matt, what was your what did you hear as you were campaigning and knocking doors um at, during during the race? Yeah,
3: from my perspective, a very similar, Bridget, I think we had a lot of people excited about kind of the message that we had. We were talking about not just the typical, like, uh, roads and, and lowering taxes and stuff, which is important, which is not something that we're saying wasn't important, but people were worried about stormwater infrastructure, climate change, the impact that flooding is having on our community. I mean, there were issues like that that were honestly more common on the doors than even, I think, the... Tax issue, and when it came to my candidacy in particular, uh, people like me, like that young, youthful candidate. I can't tell you how many times people were like, "Yeah, our current city council." No offense to any of the current city council people or the people that are there. A little older, and they were like, "Okay, it's, it's nice to have an enthusiastic young person that wants to try to change things." So I was, it was a very wonderful experience talking to. I think Bridget and I—I I, can—I can literally say thousands of individuals in our community um, about what direction we want to take Urbandale.
1: So That's you great. guys wrote in on the OK Boomer wave.
0: <laughs>
1: um, what was that? It kind of loses stuff that if I have to say it again. But uh, I said, did you guys write in on the OK Boomer wave then?
0: Okay, boom. I I still couldn't understand you. That's all right. <laughs>
1: it's it's a Gen Z joke that and it's uh,
2: fine. <laughs>
3: Yeah, sorry. I, I I'm a millennial and even I'm like I don't I don't get the joke. I'm
1: sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, um so beyond that, um what lessons can we learn from from your uh victories that we can use going forward in 2020? Oh, we can
3: start well, with I Ford, think, well, Bridget I don't know. Or, or Matt. Well, I'll, I'll, oh, think we I'll, just go, I'll, I'll take a quick crack at that. I think from the biggest lessons that I think I learned is first having a good message, solid mes- message that resonates with folks. But I think even more importantly uh, is the hard work. Bridget and I won, I would like to think because we door-knocked more folks than anybody else, and we were out there. Counting pavement, making sure that we were talking to voters. And when it comes to 2020, I think that's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to do the classic campaign tactics of going out and meeting the voters if we're going to win this in 2020.
2: Yeah, I would completely agree with Matt. I mean, it was really just putting in the effort. But I cannot say enough about um, the volunteer base that we had around us to help us knock those doors, help us get out the word. Um, in Polk County, the investment that they are making in the neighborhood um, organizations, the neighborhood party organizations, um, I think is really paying off for um, for
4: Polk County. Uh, the Urbandale Demo- area Democrats, Johnson Democrats, Ankeny area Democrats all stepped up to the plate and helped get these progressive candidates elected we would not have been um, nearly as successful without um, the constant stream of volunteers that we had from august till tuesday and then we were also blessed with uh, presidential uh, candidate staffers helping us out um, with the GOTV efforts but i really think the structural Um, changes that um, the Polk County Dems with Sean and Judy that they are working on um, are really going to help us to victory in 2020.
1: Kind of jumping off of that, uh, Bridget, what are your plans now that you've won a seat on the city council in Urbandale?
4: Well, I am so excited to really get my, roll up my sleeves and get, my hands dirty and start working on the issues that we campaigned on. My uh, primary um, campaign issue was affordable housing. It's an area that um, I have worked in uh, my entire uh, career and volunteer um, life, and something I'm very passionate about, and it's something that's desperately needed in Urban Hill from affordable. Um, rental housing to first-time home buyers to uh, affordable um, senior housing opportunities and I am eager to get to work um, on that particular issue um, even coming up this Monday is a plan and zoning commission item that I know Matt and I tend to intend to um, make sure that um, we um, get the opportunity to um, to speak on, even though we've not yet been uh, been sworn in, so affordable housing is is one of the issues that I'm really um, excited to to get involved in. But there's just so many other issues. I mean, we had uh, you know two different city events already last night that Matt and I attended. Um, so it's just uh, it's already started really, and I'm excited.
0: That's, that's great. great. Oh, <laughs> That's great. And, and as a constituent, I mean, I can say that, that I, I don't think housing gets talked about enough, but especially in a suburb where may, people don't maybe realize what an important issue it is. So I appreciate that. Matt, Matt, what's on your agenda for uh, your term in city council?
4: Well,
3: very similar to Bridget, I also want to take a big uh, crack at trying to get affordable housing done. I will, I will probably lean a little bit more into, however, the issue of on um, the stormwater infrastructure and because cli- uh, I'm a big believer in climate change I think the evidence is all around us I, I know on this show this is probably fairly self-evident right. to the folks that are meeting uh, that You could listening. say you're just
0: a believer in science too you know. I believe yeah, in right. science <laughs> it
3: is what it is but I don't think that, at, that Urbandale is still doing everything it possibly could to make sure that we are tackling that issue. I talked to hundreds of folks that there would be like oh the creek behind our house is beginning to erode away and we have to spend ten thousand dollars to try to fix it and the city wouldn't help take care of it or we had issues where oh we haven't had a lot of flooding but this new development north of us is pushing a lot of water into our neighborhood that we've never had before so it's issues of just kind of looking at how we're developing figuring out whether that is the correct method and just not just t- every time a developer comes up to us and says, oh, you know, I want to build this. We need to be a little bit more methodical about how we are building our city out because growth is very important. I'm not trying to uh, say growth is bad, but we need to do it in a strategic manner that we're not harming other residents further down in the water watershed to make sure that we are we – are- Dealing with the imp- impacts of what increased rainfalls are going to have on our community, so I'm very pa- I'm very passionate about that, and I'm ready to jump right into
0: that one. Well, that makes sense, and I think we're we're just glad that you two will be on the city council and leading on these issues and and thinking about things in 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 a little bit of a different way and bringing a progressive voice to um, to local government. So. Uh, congratulations again on your victory. We're so glad that you were able to join us today and keep up the great work and hopefully we can keep this momentum going through 2020 as well. Okay. Well,
3: thank you for having us on.
4: Yes. Thank you for having
1: us on. So it's, it's no secret that Joni Ernst has been having a rough go of it in (laughs) Iowa, um, but so recently in an Iowa starting line piece, they mentioned that not only has her approval rating fallen 13% among Republican voters, she is also blaming her struggling campaign on Iowa's quote unquote changing demographics, which right. is a dog mm-hmm. whistle if I've ever heard one, rather than on the fact that she has just an abysmal voting record on you know, protecting people's access to health care or making sure that taxes are fair or generally just everything. Um, But so Matt, why do you think that she's losing popularity among Iowans so spectacularly?
0: Well, I mean, I think that if you're looking to run a campaign for any level of office, um, the best strategy is not to blame the voters uh, or who they are for your, your falling popularity. You can't – you shouldn't say, oh, because of who you are and what your demographics are, that's why you don't like me. I mean, you should – Senator Ernst should be really – you know, she should be taking this moment to have some introspection and say, what is different now than when I was elected in 2014? And – we can see it. We've talked about this. She doesn't talk about repealing the ACA. She's trying to pull the wool over our, our eyes about protecting people with pre-existing conditions. She is wrong on taxes. She is wrong on a lot of different issues that she backs where she just is like completely supporting President Trump. Um, and she's let him run amok with trade policy and and, and just – let us become the, uh, a laughingstock where he promises, 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 never delivers. So there's a whole host of things where she should be examining her policies, but she isn't. I mean, I think all of those things combined together, um, like the bad policies plus just not standing up to the president for our state and not standing up against special interests for our state – um they, they all i think those all go hand in hand and show why she's losing popularity i mean but it certainly isn't because of who the voters are as people i mean that's that's just a terrible look for her
1: i think also changing demographics is like i said a dog whistle Completely. that is going to rile up her base that are probably going to be people who are like oh well i don't want those the, those quote unquote, kind of people.
0: Yeah, fill in the blank with fill whatever blank with scary looking person yeah. you want to assume. Uh, right.
1: Deciding my elections. And that's where kind of like voter ID, voter suppression, that's kind of like the root of that, that like these changing demographics. I'm doing air quotes, but I can't keep saying like, right. quote unquote, um, which lead to like people losing their right to vote. And it's it's making a decision about like who is allowed to have a voice Which is very upsetting and also, like, not surprising coming from someone like Joni Ernst, who is, like, a part of the same party that brought Trump to the presidency. And, I mean, he is a symptom, not the cause, but it is that kind of, like, that kind of language and rhetoric that really kind of stokes the fire. And so she's just basically throwing red meat to her base. It's like, oh, you you don't want these people deciding things for you because, you know, they're not... They're not "quote unquote" your people or like the right people yeah, to I be think, making these decisions.
0: I think that's exactly right, and I think it's a it's a it's it's a terrible and awful way to campaign and govern. But I think what we're starting to see, at least right now, this is not a per, nothing's ever permanent in politics or anything. But like, but but you're seeing a reaction to that, where calling designating people as the other or doing that is i think part of what's driving some of this reaction away from them especially in suburban communities that maybe have been more republican leaning in the past and now it's sort of like there's a re- there's a response and a reaction to this so i i think the more she and the president try to rile up their base the more it's going to push people away as well so or at least that's my hope because it's really um, it's, it's, it's really an awful, awful way to, awful mindset for someone who's in the U.S. Senate to, to, to have.
1: So Chuck Grassley was called to the White House this week to mark a milestone in Donald Trump's, uh, judicial nominee record and just tripped over himself to praise Donald Trump and i mean he's he's been one of the most important kind of accomplices to this kind of extensive judicial nomination process where he's just rubber stamped a ton of nominees through including two supreme court justices he's been the judiciary chair for both of those he no longer is is he still i think he's still on The Judiciary Committee, though, Mm -hmm.
0: and he's going to take back the committee chairmanship uh, after Lindsey Graham after this flames
1: out. (laughs) Well, no, after
0: this, uh, after the twenty. Well, he's going to take back the top Republican position on that committee Mm -hmm. in early twenty twenty one after the twenty twenty election. Whether he's the chair or the ranking member depends on who has the majority. But but they've announced that that Graham has announced that he his intention is to pass it back to Grassley.
1: Chuck Grassley said uh, was quoted saying, you ran on a platform that no other president has run on to tell the type of people that you were going to put on the Supreme Court. 20% of the people voted for you based on the proposition of the type of people you were going to put on the Supreme Court. And by the type of people, he means radical, conservative, anti-choice extremists. And Matt, you were doing work on this during the 2016 election with the Merrick Garland thing. Uh, So Grassley and Mitch McConnell have really held up this process a lot, whether it's been blue slips or just generally not holding hearings. So what are your thoughts on this this judicial milestone that they're celebrating?
0: Well, this could be like an hour long diatribe, (laughs) but because... Chuck Grassley is going to go down in history as as one of the most just despicable chairs of the, of the Judiciary Committee. Um, and he and Senator Mitch McConnell did steal a Supreme Court seat from uh, uh, from maybe it wouldn't have been from Merrick Garland, but it w- they stole the the right of the president to nominate uh, someone to the Supreme Court. Because just to rewind for a tiny second, what they didn't do is they didn't say, okay, well, um, they didn't say, well, Merrick Garland isn't who we would want. Let's sit down together and come up because it's a Republican Senate and a Democratic president. When that happens, a natural discussion would be let's sit down together and come up with a couple of nominees that that we think might work that – together. And it might not have been as liberal as Barack Obama wanted, and it certainly wouldn't have been as as conservative as what they wanted. But in a divided government, that's how it should have worked. What they did was say, you're not getting anybody, nobody. You get no pick, and we're going to take our chances on the 2016 election. Unfortunately for them, that gamble paid off, but that precedent is now in place. And so there's nothing to stop the next democratic Senate from doing that to a Republican president. And that's not the right way that we should govern, but they exploded this and they just blew up a tradition of, of not nonpartisan. I I don't want to like be naive about it, but they just destroyed this process where the president gets to nominate a Supreme court justice. And so for for Chuck Grassley to talk about this in the White House just sucking up to President Trump is is just the latest in in his disgusting behavior on judicial nominees because he he went from being the most obstructionist uh blocking every Obama nominee uh judiciary chair and then the and when 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 Trump became president the the script flipped and he he flooded those nominees. He was putting them through without notice. He was putting them through, like you said, without home state support, without those blue slips that home state senators were signing off on. The American Bar Association rates every nominee, and it is almost it has been almost unheard of for them for for them to give a rating of not qualified, and then a nominee to move forward. There have been several of those that they've rated not qualified. That's a bare standard of just being a qualified nominee. They don't care. They're pushing them through. They're pushing all their people through, and and so this is this is Chuck Grassley's swan song. This is his this is his legacy of perverting our courts into this completely political uh, uh, entity and just destroying any shred of independence they 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 even had. And so that that is. It was. It is unnerving to see him take a victory lap at the White House, sucking up to this president for this disastrous work that he's done on the judiciary. So,
1: And we haven't even gotten to, like, talking about how he oversaw the Kavanaugh hearings and what a, no. like, chaos-filled nightmare that was for so many across the country and— I mean, I I remember pretty vividly what happened in the Kavanaugh hearings, but yeah. every so often I'll remember, like, oh, yeah, they didn't have any women on the Judiciary Committee, so they had to bring one in. They had to outsource the job of, like, woman on the Judiciary du- To ju- ask questions. To ask questions. Right. And then also, like, halfway through, they just, like, 86 her, And right. were like, no, nah, we don't need you anymore.
0: It's because they didn't care about – they just didn't – he doesn't – they didn't care – they stopped caring, if they ever did, about the – the quality of the nominees and who they were putting on the bench, they wanted to get their people on. They wanted to put, regardless of who it was, they wanted to, they wanted to get their ideology in the courts. That's it. Like they didn't care if it was you, me, whoever. If someone was going to say that they would, would uh, not want regulations on businesses. They want lower taxes. They want to take people's rights away you're on the court.
1: They don't say that Brown v. Board was correctly right. decided. Yes,
0: they wouldn't say that that like that, one of the most like landmark the decisions question. in our right. So so that was their goal. They didn't care. They didn't care about anything else. So Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, the the uh, 100 plus uh, uh other nominees that they've that they've uh, packed into the courts. I mean, that, that was their plan from the beginning, to hold up these nominees under Obama so that they'd have all these vacancies if there was a Republican president, and that's what they did.
1: And then also because Trump is so incompetent, they've basically just outsourced that process to the Federalist Society, right. which has basically just gotten every judge on their wish list yeah. through the courts.
0: And that's why they like what he's done, because it's not been up to Trump. They've He's been gladly, probably he doesn't want to— spend time thinking about it, but he's gladly outsourced that process to special interest groups. And so they've gotten to pick, have their pick of the litter from the far, far right, and they're thrilled. One final story to add that just came out this morning. Congressman King apparently, despite his support for white supremacy and just generally being not a great human being, he expects to regain his committee assignments. Um, he's, he said, there's a quote that said he's had discussion with leadership, uh, as recently as the ending, of, as the end of last week, he expects to go back next week and pick up the discussion. Um, it's been, and, and, uh, that he's, he's ready to start to turn this up now and it's been too long. Um, so Lauren, what do you think? Do you think King's going to get his committee assignments back? Do you think he's going to, um, get back to work on behalf of the people of the, I can't even finish that statement. I mean, uh, what, what do you think is going to happen here?
1: I mean, I think also there's a part in that quote where he says, I've been too nice too long, and uh, so apparently we've been dealing with the happy, fun time, nice Steve King this whole (laughs) time. Um, I mean, he's been in, like, the doghouse for a while now, so I'm, I'm almost kind of, like, maybe they'll let him out and give him back his committee assignments where he will be, like, just as ineffective as he was without them. But I mean, I don't know. I don't think Kevin McCarthy likes him enough to, like, let him have them back. And I don't think he has enough, like, allies in the House that this would be a thing that, like, he could... And he also has no leverage. Like, he doesn't do anything anyway. So giving him his committee assignments back is not going to change anything.
0: Right. And I just... I I mean, maybe they will. But I think if they took it away, when they took it away, it was a rebuke of his support for white supremacy, so what does that mean if they give them back? Is it a tacit acceptance of his support of white supremacy? I think so. I mean, I, mean, I don't know how the they do that.
1: The Republican Party is kind of a tacit I, okay, support
0: for of sure right but supremacy. Like, <laughs> but but I don't know how they I don't know what the public justification is for giving him did he go to white supremacy rehab? Is he reformed? What is the you know what I mean? What's the what's the justification for doing this? I'm not asking just, you. I was just I'm thinking just saying. That like, white, white supremacy, supremacy say?
1: rehab would be a great band name, right?
0: <laughs> um, but I mean, I don't know how they are going to make the case for this publicly. I think
1: they're thinking that they don't have to make the case, and that people are will not pay attention if he gets to have his committee assignments back, because they're banking on the fact that most people do not care about politics, or think that politics is too divisive already, and are like, I don't need this in my life, and which is not true because politics literally affects every facet of your life and to think otherwise is very privileged. But yeah, I think they're just basically like if they do decide to, or maybe they're being like, yeah, Steve, we'll give you your, your committee assignments back. Sure. Sure. You know, oh, just God. like, yeah, yeah. But like give him a pat on the head and just send him away. Just like, yeah, we'll, we'll think about it. But like when your mom is like, is <laughs> Is like you you ask it like for a candy bar or something. She'll be like, I'll think about it.
0: And then it doesn't, and it never doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, maybe could be.
1: Maybe maybe just uh, their way
0: of managing it.
1: I guess i because well. I I don't he doesn't have any like strategic allies that like would be willing to go to the mat for him. And he has n- they're not in the majority. They I mean I would I would think that they're probably like we need every man we can. But also like apparently not well i don't
0: know that he's in value added to anything that they do and or really to the house of representatives in general so i i it will be really interesting to see how this shakes out if he does get it back or get any of these back what they say how that how it how they justify it i mean i i would be shocked if they if they did this
1: i I mean i would too i would hope that they don't and i also hope that like people in the fourth district see that like he's not doing anything and even if he gets them back he's still not going to be doing anything because he has been rated one of the most ineffective house members of all time what a week is produced by progress iowa as part of the potluck media network and would not be possible without grassroots supporters like you we are recorded mixed and edited by greg Hallenstein. For more information, visit potluck.fm or find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe. See you next week on What A Week.